0: Today's show is sponsored by How to Fix the Internet, an original podcast from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Sometimes it can feel like we are moving towards a digital future no one wants, but it doesn't have to be that way. There are choices we can make to create an internet that makes a better future for all of us. In each episode, Cindy Cohn and Jason Kelly invite someone with a vision on how to fix the internet, someone with real solutions on how to move the needle forward towards a better online world. We checked out the Freedom to Tinker episode of How to Fix the Internet, and it was interesting to see how we can learn from open source and lessons from the past to fix future challenges. Search for How to Fix the Internet in your podcast player, and we'll include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to How to Fix the Internet for their support.
1: Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Graceley bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world.
2: Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And it is Aaron for Cloud News this week. And I admit, I've been a little behind here lately. Listeners uh, may or may not have known I had a big birthday and went on a big ski trip out to Park City, Utah, and had a fantastic time. But I admit, it has been a struggle to catch back up. But here we are. It is cloud news for this week, and then we also have a great talk about cloud-native security coming up after the break. And so for our first news article, the Kubernetes project, there's a community-owned image registry that was out there, uh, k8s.gcr.io, and it was announced a couple months ago that this will be frozen and everything will be migrated over to registry.k8s.io, now, some reasons were given on this one, and there was a you know blog about it. Basically, at the end of the day, things are going to be a little bit faster. Everything's going to be load balanced. Instead of just being hosted on the Google Container Registry, that's GCR, it will be co-hosted between Google and AWS as well. So a little bit of load balancing going on, a little bit of adding some features to all of this and making things better uh, for the future. but to those that are out there that are interested in this, the old registry is going away. Um, And when I say going away, I mean, it's going to be frozen. And as of the 3rd of April, no more changes will be made to that. So definitely, if this is something that will impact you, it's something you'd want to look into as soon as possible. And moving on to our second article, and this goes back to ChatGPT and, uh, you know, it's been all over the news and Google did their big Bard announcement and that was uh, um, less than spectacular, shall we say. Well, Microsoft now with their Bing uh, chat and and search functionality being integrated with ChatGPT, it's a little rough around the edges as well. And so what they're finding out is... The more questions you ask it, it kind of goes down this weird rabbit hole where it starts to make less and less sense. So Microsoft is going to be limiting Bing chats to five questions per session, and that's it. And hopefully that will stop a little bit of the badness, if you will, in the chat GPT world. Always interesting to watch this develop, and it's also interesting to see all of the press around something like this. Some of it positive, some of it not so much, but it's always interesting to watch these things develop. And third thing for our news is VMware on Broadcom acquisition. Back in the news. Uh, But this one, honestly, it's not that big of a deal probably, but it's also worth talking about is the merger talks are going to be extended. So they've extended it 90 days and they're expecting this now to close somewhere in the May timeframe, but they do admit um, the EU regulators in uh, particular are still looking at everything and may not have an answer until sometime in June. So we may even see another delay again. Again, an acquisition of this big, uh, it's gonna get some scrutiny it's going to get the regulators looking at it and it's going to go through the approval process and that's going to take time. With that, uh, quick reminder, all of these links are in our Cloud News uh, links and document, but there's also some others in there as well. I've started to just kind of throw... I talk about the top three, but I've I've thrown some other ones in there. There's what is a bridge round, which I thought was really fascinating considering the state of the VC industry. It really explains bridge rounds really well. And then there's another one uh, that comes from the API newsletter that we've talked about many times on the show before, but WTF is an API uh, product manager and product management of APIs, which also I thought was a super fascinating read. So with that, I'm going to close out cloud news this week. Coming up after the break, we have Michael Izbitsky over at Sysdig talking about cloud native security.
0: Today's episode of the Cloudcast is sponsored by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, traces, and logs into one tightly integrated platform. Datadog APM empowers developer teams to identify anomalies, resolve issues, and improve application performance. Begin collecting stack traces, visualizing them as flame graphs, organizing them into profile types, such as CPU, IO, and more. Teams can search for specific profiles, correlate them with distributed traces, and identify slow or underperforming code for analysis and optimization. Plus, with Datadog APM Live Search, you can perform searches across the full stream of ingested traces generated by your application over the last 15 minutes. Try Datadog APM free with a 14-day trial and Datadog will send you a free T-shirt. Visit Datadog.com/slash/APM-cloudcast to get started. That's Datadog.com/slash/APM-cloudcast.
2: Are you struggling to keep up with the demands of managing and securing identity in your distributed enterprise IT environment? You're not alone, but don't let it hold you back. With Strata's identity orchestration platform, you can secure all your apps on any cloud with any IDP, so your IT teams will never have to refactor for identity again. Imagine modernizing app identity in minutes instead of months, deploying passwordless on any tricky old app, and achieving business resilience with always-on identity, all from one lightweight and flexible platform. Want to see it in action? Share your identity challenge with us on a discovery call, and we'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cloudcast. That's strata.io slash cloudcast.
0: And we're back. And folks, you know, we've uh, we're into 2023. 2023 obviously has some sort of some new dynamics to the year as we haven't had over the last couple of years. And one of the big things that uh, is, is a very, very early talking point for the year is, you know, people getting back to being very, very focused around security. Uh, sometimes, when the economy makes some some ups and downs, we start to kind of go back and say, "Hey, let's look at you know what we're doing around security. Are we doing all the best practices? You know, what's our hygiene looks like? Are we focused enough on it?" And obviously, we just finished having the the Cloud Native Security Summit uh, out on the West Coast, and uh, so very, very excited today to sort of dig into security a little more and really dig into not just theory, not just you know, kind of. You know what's out there, but really dig into a bunch of data. So, really, really excited to have Michael Zbyszki, who is director of cybersecurity strategy at Sysdig. Michael, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. It's
1: great to be here, Brian. Thank you.
0: Um, so, we're going to dive into uh, and, and really talk about Sysdig. Um, runs a, a fantastic uh, survey and report that comes out every year, uh, the cloud native security and usage report. But before we dive into that, uh, give give us a little bit of your background, kind of, uh, you know, where you've been maybe prior to Sysdig, your focus around security,
1: all those types of things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's sometimes struggle where to start. It's been a pretty, pretty storied career. Uh, but generally I do start that, uh, I was a practitioner for quite some time, close to 20 years at, uh, Verizon. So I saw quite a bit, um, primarily in the realm of enterprise architecture, but then the, uh, the latter part of my career there, I was very focused on application security. So assessing all of the web applications everybody uses and mobile apps, um, finding quite a quite a few interesting things. Uh, and uh, I, I was leading a team there as well for, for quite a bit. And then uh, I jumped to the research side of things uh, with, with Gartner, um, doing that for roughly five years. Uh, and so I'll quite a bit more. So yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. quite a uh, quite quite interesting path. And then I pivoted and then I'm um, uh, kind of more in the realm of uh, evangelism and just uh, raising public awareness around all, all types of security issues. Uh, certainly still keeping my, my uh, pulse on the application security, but, um, mm-hmm. Uh, also, very focused on uh, cloud and container security as well, which is yeah. how it landed at Sysdig.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. We've we've uh, we've covered Sysdig for a long time. Um, number of friends over there, and uh, Pop and Pop and others. And um, but for folks that maybe aren't familiar with Sysdig, maybe they're new to the, the cloud native space. Uh, maybe they've been doing more traditional security. Just give us a quick overview of of Sysdig. The you know the technology, sort of the philosophy around uh, both open source and the commercial offerings and stuff
1: like that. Yeah, and it's, uh, I got to be careful because uh, one, I'm not great at the sales pitch, but uh, two, it can also be uh, quite quite lengthy. But I'd say uh, the most succinct uh, explanation is uh, we help with cloud security from source to run. Um, Sysdig has uh, a very deep and mature pedigree with uh, containers and Kubernetes specifically. Um, and uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with a tool like uh, Wireshark, uh, it's very commonly used uh, in the network engineering and network security space, but even sometimes uh, application troubleshooting. Uh, so our, one of our co-founders, Loris uh brought a lot of those uh, design philosophies to uh, Sysdig, uh, and that's actually open source. That's Sysdig open source, uh, and it gathers syscall data, basically all, all of the telemetry coming off a host, uh, including containers. And uh, that allows you to do a lot of uh, troubleshooting, obviously, But all of those signals also do feed into the other piece of uh, open source software that Sysdig has, which is uh, Falco. It's been uh, kind of donated to uh, CNCF, and uh, those are kind of underpinnings of uh, the Sysdig secure platform that Sysdig maintains. So it's a lot of capabilities there. It's kind of helps you secure all all types of compute and all types of environments, right? Because most. Most organizations have a mixture, right? Not everybody's in AWS. They might still have some things on premises, uh, whether that's bare metal or virtual machines. But they're also uh, doing quite a few things in containers in k- Kubernetes, even if it's just experimental. But uh, they often uh, enter the picture very quickly.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Yes, Istik has been, uh, you know, right there at the forefront of of all the cloud native stuff. Uh, you know, going back to kind of the the original Kubernetes stuff, and uh, yeah, it's been. It's been it's been really interesting to see you know again the the evolution of not only the technology but uh, you know the contributions back to the CNCF and to open source and, and all those sort of things. Um, one of the things that we love to do on this show um, is you know obviously we get a chance to talk about a lot of trends. And a lot of times the trends are, you know, are set by hey, you know, headlines or, or an announcement or an acquisition. Um, but we always feel like the, you know, sort of the best way to dig into trends is to, to have a chance to dig into data. And and you guys mm-hmm. do a really good job every year of. Uh, you know, digging into the data that you've got visibility to, which is obviously, you know, very widespread, lots of different types of companies, lots of different types of industries. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about about this uh, cloud data security and usage report. Um, but let's start with the scope of it. How do you guys go about, uh, you know, collecting data? You know, what are some of the things that that you, you know, you're trying to do in in capturing the report and, and kind of representing the bigger picture?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Brian. And it's, um. I'd say it starts a lot earlier than most people would expect. I want to say we uh, started thinking about uh, what kind of areas of data we'd want to explore. Um, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Anna Bellick, uh kind of uh, seeded a lot of those thoughts and led that. Uh, she, she helped quite a bit with last year's report, but it, it kind of starts there and it, it was kind of like early summer. 2022, we're like, all right, what do we what do we explore in last year's report? What do we kind of want to dive further on? Uh, but not necessarily knowing where that story is going to take us. Just knowing that these are the trends we're seeing in industry. This is where we think things might be heading. Can we get some data around that? Is it going to be interesting? We don't know, right? It's kind of uh, educated guess, right? But sure. also, we want to eventually. Uh, unearth the data that might support that or dispute it, right? That certainly happens as well and we might talk about that as we get through the the trends in the report. But yeah, it starts very much that way, right? Kind of what are the things we're seeing in industry? And then uh, we just kind of har- harvest uh, data around that that's in uh, SysTix Secure. Uh, it is it is a SaaS platform. I didn't actually mention that earlier. Uh, that's how a lot of customers consume it. So we, we have a lot of data that is uh, anonymized and we can kind of uh, pull in some really interesting stats that uh, support these um, trends. So it's kind of data first. Uh, it is not survey. Uh, it is real world data, right? On billions of containers. So this is how uh, organizations of all sizes and across industries are, are operating all types of environments. So we get a really um, realistic picture of, you know, but what what is the world like with uh, cloud native security? Yeah. Um, and then you know once we've gathered the data, it, I think the report <laughs> first draft may I want to say it was like sixty to eighty pages. I mean it was pretty crazy. And then it's it's kind of all right. Well, what's the story we want to tell? Right, so we can make this data more uh, palatable to an audience. Um, and the data is still there. Um, some of that's kind of in supplementary sections, but um. Yeah, what are those trends? Like, what are those things that uh, people can can latch onto to to drive their security programs in the year ahead?
0: Yeah, what what are some of the trends that you guys saw maybe that that have changed over the last year or that uh, you know accelerated or decelerated that you know maybe were, were a little surprising or you know maybe wasn't uh, uh, you know what, what you what you necessarily expected? What are the, what are the things that that people are going to look at and go, okay, I you know I, I need to dig
1: into this a little bit more. Maybe it's, it's yeah yeah relevant to their organization or. Uh, yeah, there's quite a few. Uh, there's quite a few. It's surprising to me also. And I, like I said, I've seen quite a bit in my career. But um, so vulnerability, I mean, <laughs> if you read a security report, you often hear ah, vulnerabilities are trending up, right? We, we hear that uh, sure. quite, quite often. But it was interesting to see, right? Uh, and you have to kind of go into this with the mindset that these are customers that have actually deployed uh, cloud and container security tooling, right? They're using Systix Secure. So they're kind of aware of the problem. And now they're seeking visibility, they're scanning, they're securing things in runtime, all all that great stuff. Um, So it's it's kind of like its best case, right? Or like, this could be the most ideal security um, scenario. Uh, But one of the things that was most surprising was to see um, container image vulnerabilities trend up as much as they did. and I, I believe it was 87 percent uh in the uh the most recent but it, it trended up from uh, uh 70s uh last year so quite a bit of uh latent vulnerabilities in container images that organizations um you know they they will often spin those up in their environments uh so you know, application workloads infrastructure all of those things kind of become part of the running uh production environment um, and it, you know, if you go deep enough down the rabbit hole, you start kind of exploring software s- uh, supply chain uh, issues, right? Because this is c- container images are kind of one of those fundamental building blocks of how everybody is building—not uh, just applications, but their systems, right? Because infrastructure is also uh, part of the equation now by right. virtue of DevOps. Um, so yeah, to see that trend up was very interesting, right? Because it's like, all right, we're we're facing a bigger problem. Uh, we're aware of it. So uh, there's, there's another kind of uh, buried question there about, well, why are images getting so bad kind of in the public domain? You know, are public registries not doing enough to scan things? Are they inundated? Um, and sometimes my mind goes to uh, kind of the mobile security space because of some of my background, but also research. But um, you saw this a lot and still see this with uh, mobile public mobile app stores like Apple and uh Google play uh where there's just so many apps that get published and you know those entities do everything they can to scan uh and they're cherry picking to annually test uh and they actually offload scans as well to to third parties but uh there's just so much code and application code right and uh, these apps that <laughs> they just can't scan at all effectively so you, you're it's like uh you always kind of I don't want to say cesspool, but it's like it's not as uh, cl- clean or hygienic as you might like, right? So it's, uh, it should raise a lot of uh, red flags for organizations about how they source componentry. Um, but yeah, that that one was pretty interesting to see trend up as much as it did. I would have expected that to go down a little, right? Because there was so much uh, visibility on vulnerabilities, you know, with uh, OpenSSL, lock 4 j like there, there was just a lot of. Uh, kind of spotlight on vulnerabilities in software in the past couple of years. Yeah. Now that
0: was, that was one of the ones that, that really jumped out at, at, at me as well. And it's, it's one of those ones that, yeah, on, on one hand, we've been telling people for, for years and years, um, yes, uh, you know, things like Docker hub and public repositories are, are great for, you know, being, you know, allowing you to, to build that sort of hello world application quickly uh, kind of get something up and running, but you know that that's never been a best practice for that to be your your source of truth it's never been a a best practice for it to you know sort of trust what comes from the internet um and yeah it's it's so there's a part of that that you know it's a little frustrating that you know the the best practices the the good practices you know maybe aren't necessarily getting adopted as as quickly as they could and then on the flip side you know there's there's always the the sort of reality of of security which is you know look look dude uh, sometimes security is especially in times when there's a lot of innovation there's a lot of people pushing hey we need we need new we need new we need new uh you know sometimes security is sometimes a, a secondary thought and you know the last few years have been have been boom years uh you know sometimes this is a wake up call so you know, as much as you might look at that as, okay, the numbers went up, maybe that's a bad thing. Um, sometimes it's a good thing, you know, a red flag like that can be, yep. can be a good thing to get people going. Okay. Um, I didn't know we were as vulnerable or as, as potentially exposed as, uh, as we could have been. Um, you know, and, and again, part of it is, is tooling, like you said, you know, are the, are the things scanning things the right way, but part of it is just, you know, building, the, the right mindset into, into your sort of cultural DNA and, and, and the way you do stuff. So. so, um, you know, on the, on the flip side of that, what are some of the other things you've seen in terms of, cause this, this report is is not only sort of security, but it's also about usage, um, you know, kind of growth and usage. Yeah. What, what are some of the usage trends that, that are sort of surprising to you?
1: Yeah. And that, that was another very kind of surprising statistic. And one of them, um, bridges that world of security vulnerabilities, uh, we talk about this concept of uh, in use uh, and in use risk exposure, but um, there there's kind of this um, reality of what happens when you source third party libraries and componentry. You're not always using all of the functionality in that, and you might actually reference a library that just uh, maybe used at one point, and then you're not using that functionality because maybe you, you coded your own uh, routines, like it it's a it's kind of a fuzzy picture but generally what happens is there's a lot of code that gets referenced that never actually gets used in runtime so Cystic has a capability to surface that uh and tell you right like well you you might have scanned all of your images and now you know what's um all the packages that are referenced some of those are maybe vulnerable yes uh but what are you actually seeing in runtime also and that's huge right because uh I think through the thousands of conversations I've had with practitioners and leaders, and you know, usually one of the biggest headaches was, you know, I could scan until the end of days, and I'm always going to find issues. The problem is I don't know what to focus on, right? What what is actually in use? Because that's a way to prioritize, and it it impacts everything, um, not just typical infrastructure and operations, and uh, as well as security, of course, right? Because of vulnerabilities, how do you Prioritize remediation work. So, massive impacts. Right, that was always kind of a, a divide between well, what's happening in runtime and then what am I checking for in build and delivery. Um, so, the, this whole concept of in-use um, exposure is massive. Right, that's that's kind of that connective tissue. It's going to tell you like these are the things you're seeing early in early stages, but this is what's actually manifesting. Uh, in runtime, right? And typically that's production, but you, you might also prioritize non-production environments. Maybe they are critical for you. Or maybe they're um, exposed to, to some larger audience. Um, so that was a really interesting one. And the stat um, dropped to 15% of packages uh, are actually in use. Um, so you know, if you start from kind of the 100%, these things are, have... Latent vulnerabilities, and then you start looking at well, what's actually in use. That number drops down to fifteen percent, and then particularly with vulnerabilities, if you um, want to look at things that are exploitable as well, right? There's known exploit code for it. That number drops down even more drastically to something like two uh, you percent. know, <laughs> if you don't, if you only have certain cycles, you might start uh, focus on just that two percent. So it's uh, having that. Information is incredibly valuable, not not just to security uh, teams, but also IT teams, right? Because if you know you're referencing libraries that aren't in use, you're going to want to pull them back, right? Because it's it's like dead code, right? It's a operational burden, um, and it it also ties into the concept of image bloat, right? You're just you're you're using too much, right? And that's not a performant application, so you really want to kind of streamline things. So having that information is huge for for both crowds. Um, and then the other thing we saw was uh, kind of on the, on the cost side of things, and that was with uh, like dollar cost specifically, but uh, with Kubernetes cluster sizes. And I, I know not every not everybody's there in the world of Kubernetes, but uh, for for listeners, if they're newer to this, right, Kubernetes is kind of the de facto standard for for running containers and. Kind of a enterprise scale or pr- production capacity, spinning up and tearing down containers uh, constantly. Right, these are not long living things like you would expect with uh, bare metal or virtual machines. But what we saw was that uh, as customers were uh, operating larger Kubernetes clusters, right, and that translates to nodes specifically. Uh, nodes are kind of one of those elements of a Kubernetes environment. Um, if they were I believe it was over a thousand nodes. Uh, they they were wasting roughly ten million dollars on average, um, and it it does slide down as well, right? For, you know, not everybody's running a thousand node cluster that is very large. Uh, some might opt to run less nodes that have more pods, right? So you have a lot more containers on uh, less less node machines, um, and uh, still though the cost waste was roughly forty percent. So there's uh, it definitely moves exponentially, but there's there's cost uh, there's cost savings to be had kind of across the board for uh, kind of how Kubernetes clusters are are spun up, which is huge, right? If you think about kind of the economic environment we're in, uh, almost every organization is is scrutinizing expense these days.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, we we've, we've talked quite a bit about uh, kind of around cost management, especially Kubernetes cost management. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely something I think it. It, it sort of highlights um you know I feel like sort of where we are from a maturity perspective with with containers right we're we've seen you know kind of the, the earliest adopters now we're starting to see that second wave a little more mainstream and you know I, I think some of the things that that you guys really highlighted in there are you know we're seeing uh we're seeing some deficiencies maybe some lack of using all the features and, and that feels like pretty normal for a little more mainstream. They don't dive into the technology as much. Maybe they're not uh, thinking as efficiently as they could have um, about a lot of things because they're just, you know, they're sort of, oh, okay, we're getting this stuff running, but they don't have uh, maybe all the expertise in house that some of the earlier adopters or people who are paying attention to to every feature might have had. Um, I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about some of the the best practices. Um, you know, some of the you know, best practices for managing vulnerability. There's some, there's some talk in the report about, you know, common vulnerability scoring system, CVSS, not something I'm I'm tremendously familiar with. Can you kind of give us a sense of, of, you know, what, what these scoring systems are doing and and how they're helping to, you know, at least normalize for people what, you know, what do some of these vulnerabilities mean? Um, You know, how can they best try to protect themselves from them or
1: mitigate them and, and things like that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've, I've got it a few times over the years. And uh, I sometimes pepper it with the application security world, too, because it's uh, there's another kind of a taxonomy there with um, uh, common weakness enumerations and a different scoring system, which is CWSS. But uh, CVSS particularly aligns to uh, CVE IDs, uh, Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. Identities or identifiers, Uh, but really CVE IDs, how most people describe it. And um, that's kind of the catalog of everything we know, right? Known vulnerabilities in published software, sometimes hardware, right? If you think about embedded systems um, and the creators of that, you know, they're doing their own testing. Uh, Security researchers are doing external testing. They might find some bugs that exhibit uh, conditions that. Now, if you were to abuse or exploit that, you can create some uh, really bad event like denial of service, or maybe you can escalate privileges, uh, system compromise, right? There's a lot of different uh, really negative outcomes, right? So th- that's the world of uh, CVE IDs, and that's, you know, that database is operated by MITRE, government organization. But as part of that, they also have the, um, the CVSS. Uh, there's been a couple versions of it. CVSS 3 is the current... And there are a lot of uh, parameters within that that um, you can use to kind of calculate relative risk scores for your organization. Um, you know, in my experience, most, <laughs> most practitioners don't really fudge with that too much. They kind of take what the CVSS score is as uh, essentially gospel. But <laughs> there's some adjustments you can make uh, based on like difficulty of attacking the particular piece of software or hardware. Like maybe it's... Uh, Really uh, difficult to get access to, you know, some some piece of code uh, that's going to complicate the attack. That would generally lower the score. Uh, but you also have to look at things like, well, what's the potential impact, right? And then um, if you think of vulnerabilities like Log4Shell and um, uh, the OpenSSL vulnerabilities that were potentially going to be big, and then they got scaled back a little bit. Those those had very high CVSS scores because they had. Uh, potentially very broad impact to a lot of things, and um, you know when you exploited it, 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 it results in uh, privilege escalation and system compromise. So those are, are remote code execution. You hear terms like this, so all of those things kind of generally elevate the score. But there there are some uh, some some tunes and dials in there that you know if you really wanted to dig into the weeds, you could um, adjust risk scores for your own organization based on how you build out your environments. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of um, so, you know, you have that taxonomy, you have that rough scoring system, but, you know, what happens for organizations is they have vulnerabilities, yes, but then they also have uh, misconfigurations or design weaknesses. Uh, and those things don't generally map to a CVE ID, right? It's something you've done. Right. Uh, it's not a known vulnerability. So it, you kind of end up with this mountain of all these problems. And then it's like, well, how do you prioritize operational uh, challenges, buddy, um, uh, security as well, right? Like, how are you prioritizing risk? Um, so that, that's another kind of thing that Sysdig does is aggregates all this, right? Tells you what your problems are. Uh, we uh, The other thing we saw was kind of identity misconfigurations was another problem, right? Uh, over-permissioned users that aren't being used, uh, that's, that's a misconfiguration. That's not something that CVSS would help you with. So gotcha. a lot of ways you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, but it's good to know that there's, you know, there, it's not just sort of, uh, you know, re- red and green. Do, do you have the CVEs or they new or they're old? It, it, it has become more of a, a combination of, you know, the actual vulnerabilities, the, the operational, you know, kind of Context around it, configurations, best practices, and then you know there, there's some other stuff that has to go in there. So it gives you a, feels like it gives you a more sort of three sixty degree view of of, uh, of where you are and, and where you can get better. Um, one of the things I was a little surprised about um, because it, it's talked about a ton in our industry, especially in the security industry, is is zero trust and and what looked like sort of the the, the lack of trust of zero trust um, in the industry so I, i'm curious you know we've seen sort of government mandates around around government uh, around zero trust obviously a lot of stuff came out of some of the uh the software supply chain hacks the the solar winds hack and so forth um are you surprised at you know because I, I feel like as i get the chance to talk to a lot of companies they're trying to implement zero trust they recognize their their perimeters have, have sort of gone away they're not you know, sort of the, the moats that they used to be, are you surprised at, at people's, uh, opinions or takes on, on zero trust? And, and do you think there's, there's something sort of deeper there or is it just, you know, they don't necessarily love the buzzwords of,
1: of zero trust. Oh yeah. It's, uh, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> so it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, so it's interesting, right. You know, as a researcher, I got this, uh, question a lot, you know, talking to, um, Gartner clients like an advisory where Craig. Like, well, how does zero trust impact application security initiatives? And it, it often did feel like a buzzword, right? It is very loaded. A lot of uh, vendors market to that. Um, there is value in zero trust architecture concepts. Um, and it's kind of an extension of things that security practitioners have been taught since the beginning. Um, you know, the, the fundamentals of restricting access and. Um, uh, ensuring least privilege, right? Only grant uh, the appropriate amount of access to do your job, right? That's that's kind of it, right? That's the basics of it. Um, and zero trust is kind of an evolution of that where it's, well, assume the environment is always compromised, right? So now you have to kind of layer in things like monitoring the endpoint and monitoring the cloud environment, right? And uh, continuously authenticating and authorizing people because something may have changed, from the start of that interaction or session. So it's, a, it's kind of a leap from, well, I've granted least privilege and I'm good. It's like, well, no, you can't kind of leave it at that, right? It's You have to assume so- something could go wrong in any given moment. So you have to be constantly or continuously checking these things. Uh, so that that's a lot, right? If you think about that, that it's not just, I, I can't just set it and forget it. I can't just scan in a build pipeline. I need to be doing that. And then I also need to be monitoring runtime to detect if something's going wrong, I need um, dynamic identity and access management systems doing dynamic challenges um, to users, right, based on what's appropriate for the data they're trying to get to. Uh, so it, it, it very quickly uh, rattles into different technology topics. And um, you know, the other thing that is really important to remember when you think about... Uh, Authenticating and authorizing identities is that it's not just uh, human users, right? We, we sometimes think of some, maybe somebody on their phone that's interacting with a mobile app that's going to talk to back-end services. That's one kind of scenario, but you know, services themselves also need to authenticate and authorize because they too can be compromised uh, and you need to do all the same things you would expect with a human user. So uh, we kind of took those for granted, I would say. Uh, when we were kind of operating in the world of data center environments and on-premises, right? Safe from the outside world, we firewalled everything. Yes, we know, like service identities might be a problem or machine uh, identity, but it's not a problem because we have our firewalls. And now when you start externalizing services, uh, maybe from your data center, but certainly putting those types of workloads in clouds, right? now, Now, well, now these Machine identities are existing in the cloud. They might be very short lived. They might be highly automated. Uh, typically, authentication and authorization needs to be fully tra- uh, seamless and transparent, right? You're not going to challenge a machine like you would a user, right? <laughs> They're not going to plug in a, a 2FA code or answer a mobile authenticator challenge. So it just doesn't work, right? So, you get a lot of different types of um, authorization scenarios that you have to account for so that really muddies the water right and it's all part of the zero trust um conversation uh sometimes what i've seen with um you know kind of all personas in organizations of all sizes is that zero trust sometimes the mind tends to go well maybe just the human problem but also to kind of back to the network perimeter uh style thinking and you know we do need to be concerned about network perimeters, but those perimeters look drastically different when you talk about cloud uh, native architectures and moving things to cloud, right? It's public cloud, private cloud, hybrid cloud. So uh, network perimeter is v- really difficult, right? You kind of talk about a shifting perimeter and uh, people will sometimes say identity is the new perimeter and it's, they're, they're not necessarily wrong. It's it's all these things, right? And your, your network perimeter isn't kind of this fully defined thing at a, a network um, entry point. You know, you're, you have kind of perimeters within environments like, you know, Kubernetes itself, a cluster is going to have its own uh, network policies, right? And now you can restrict how uh, containers and pods communicate with each other. So uh, yeah, micro segmentation is generally how that's yeah. called out, but yeah, it's just a lot, right? And it's, this is all part of zero trust. And I feel like I've been talking on this for a few minutes, but it's like that is how complex it is, uh, and it's it's great that we have a lot of recognition now on the problem, uh, but it's incredibly deep, right? And um, most organizations aren't that mature that they can address all of that, right? That's a lot of manpower. You need a lot of tooling as well to support it, uh, and there's just a lot that can go wrong when you think about the entire landscape of uh, human identity and machine identity. Right. Uh, hopefully that helps pick that apart. But yeah, it's. Uh, Definitely a a wily beast.
0: Yeah, no, and and yeah, and I think you I think you did a great job sort of explaining that it's you know we we start off with this sort of uh, you know one one name one concept in terms of zero trust, but the reality is you know it, it impacts. The, sort of the technology landscape in a lot of ways, right? Like you said, it's whether you're talking about sort of human interaction, you know, sort of, uh, you know, what we think of as like edge devices and edge VPNs and those types of, you know, what we used to call that. Are we talking about machine to machine? Are we talking about other areas? And I, yeah, I think what we tend to find with that is, um, you know, there's there may not necessarily be sort of a an end point. people are, are, are they're working their way through, you know getting to uh, you know better overall security, but also just dealing with the adaptation of of how things have changed and where people are, where machines are, you know whether you're in the cloud, you're on-prem, all that kind of stuff. Well listen yep. um i don't I don't want us to give away give away everything that's in the report. You guys have done an awesome job with it. Um, we've had a chance to to dig through it, and it's been fun um kind of digging into it. Um, if anybody wants to to get a copy of it, they want to you know engage with with you and your team. What are the best ways to to go about doing that?
1: Uh so for myself personally, you know, I, I'm kind of like I try to make myself as as public as possible. You know, certainly reach out to me on LinkedIn, connect, uh, ask questions. Right? It's uh, I've spent countless hours researching this, but also <laughs> talking to people. And it's uh, there's no dumb questions. Right? It's only the questions that you don't ask right it's uh you you have to kind of seek those answers and it is it's a very long journey right a lot of these concepts don't even necessarily make sense until you're kind of uh dipping your toes in the water and uh really exploring all this technology and the impacts to that and everything right We talked about kind of ops issues uh Uh, capital expenditure, uh, security vulnerabilities and risk, right? There's just, there's a lot to it. So personally uh, reach out to me, but um, you know, for Sysdig, the report is available on Sysdig.com slash usage report. Um, And uh, you certainly Google for it also, but um, yeah, quite a few avenues um, that that people can uh, obtain the report and and certainly take a look and, and please do ask questions. You now it's kind of, as we were saying earlier, it's like this uh, kind of continuous journey how Sysdig looks at the data uh, and is trying to help industry on, uh, you know, whatever those trends we're seeing, how can we help organizations in their security programs?
0: Yeah, no, outstanding stuff. Outstanding stuff. Michael, thank you so much for for helping us dig into uh, Sysdig 2023 Cloud Native Security and Usage Report. Um, there's also going to be a link in the show notes, folks. If, if you forget the URL, uh, it's right there, uh, you know, in the show notes for you. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for for educating us, for taking the time to, to dig into it, and most importantly, kind of sharing your expertise over, over a number of years uh, of you know having having worked on this and, and like you said, um, kind of being around the industry and, and really having a good view of, of what's going on. So, folks, with that, I want to thank Michael for his time. I want to thank Sysdig for their time today. Um, we're going to wrap it up with that. Thanks to everybody who tells a friend, everybody who has been uh, helping us grow the show, grow the community. Um, really appreciate it. And with that, we'll wrap it up, and we'll talk to you next week.